The incidence of concussion, the most common type of traumatic brain injury, more than doubled among students participating in sports like basketball, soccer, and football over the past decade. Parents like the benefits and opportunities that athletics afford their children, but are concerned that their child could suffer concussion and its potential after effects. Experts agree that concussion is a difficult injury to diagnose. X-rays and other imaging of the brain often cannot detect signs of a concussion. Hello, I'm Dr. Jay Greenspan. In this edition of Pediatric Chat, we'll explore the realities of concussion and try to separate myth from fact so that parents can better understand the risks and what really happens to the brain after a concussion. If you have a question about concussions, we encourage you to send it to us through the question portal on the webpage so that we can review it and post a follow-up response. Joining me today is my co-host, Dr. Paul Rosen. Paul? Hello, Jay. And we are very glad to welcome our special guest for this program, Dr. Kathleen O'Brien, who is the medical director of the sports medicine program here at Nemours Alpha I DuPont Hospital for Children. Hello, Kathleen. Hi, Jay. She is the medical director of our sports medicine program here at Nemours Alfred I. DuPont Hospital for Children. So Kathleen, to start off, what is a concussion? In the simplest terms, it's a brain injury. And it's a brain injury that results from a traumatic event. The trauma that we typically think of is the trauma that occurs to a head. So your head hits something or something hits your head. But in reality, it can be a force that hits your chest or your jaw. The mechanism that follows is what causes the concussion. So there's the initial impact, and that certainly can cause an injury. But what follows then is the way the brain shakes inside the skull a little bit. And we like to think about it in a sort of crude way, sort of like jello in a bowl. The brain shakes a little bit inside the skull in the fluid that it's surrounded by, and that's what actually causes the injury. So there are these shearing forces that go across the cells in the brain. And in reality, just about every cell in the brain is sort of up for grabs in terms of injury. And so it's really a global injury. Although there's one impact, the force is then dispersed. And so it's a global traumatic brain injury. We often put mild in front of it. People will call it a mild traumatic brain injury, but oftentimes there's nothing really mild about it. When we say mild, what we mean is that there's no obvious intracranial damage that we can see as opposed to some of the more significant traumatic brain injuries. So there's not actually hematoma or bleeding in the skull. There's not a skull fracture, but clearly the brain has been injured. And in your practice, is this a common thing that you see? It's one of the most common things that I see um, across the board. The actual incidence of concussion is really not known. We don't have a terrific national database for reporting. Uh, so really all we have are estimates, and, and the estimates are even hard to come by. The numbers range, as far as we can tell now, the CDC estimates that there are between 1.5 and 3.5 million concussions per year in sports and activities um, across the board. But what we know is that a good number of concussions are just not reported, so it, it's hard to know, but clearly very common. We all think that it's more common than ever. What's the story behind that? Why has it changed? That's a good question. I think there's two factors here, probably multiple factors, but two clear ones to point to. Is One is that kids, teens, adolescents have more exposures, and so many more children are playing in many more competitive sports and leagues and are playing more times throughout the year. So there's just more opportunities for them to get hit. I don't think it's a small coincidence that with the rise in soccer popularity across the United States, there's been an increase in incidents in concussions. And the same thing with lacrosse, particularly in this area, or ice hockey in, in other areas. 
So there's a combined increased exposure with, we're just so much more aware of it now. We're much better at detecting it. We're much better at reporting it. And we know so much more about it. We're treating it better. So I, I think those two things come together and, and it looks like there's a lot more concussions. So what are the symptoms? How does someone know they have a concussion? The symptoms are highly variable, and this is where it gets a little bit different, or difficult, I should say. In the easiest circumstance, there was a very clear hit. Everybody on the field saw it. The kid went down. He got up. He's woozy. He has a headache. He doesn't look right. Those are the easy ones to pick out. But oftentimes, the hit isn't seen by everybody, or it was a hit that you wouldn't have maybe thought would have caused an injury as significant as it was, and it can be a little bit more subtle. One of the hardest things is that oftentimes they really do feel fine right afterwards or in the you know five minutes afterwards. Maybe they had a little headache or they didn't feel quite right, but shook it off, so to speak, and five minutes later they look fine and they feel fine, and the symptoms can then evolve over the next 24, 48, even 72 hours. They start to get a headache. One of the more difficult things, I think, for a lot of young people and teenagers, too, is sometimes I don't think they know what they're feeling or they can't quite put it into words. Maybe they just think they're tired or this is normal, but it's this not quite feeling right feeling. Some people describe it as foggy. They're just slow. Cognitively, things don't come as quick as they normally do. And then in addition to the headache, sometimes it looks or feels a little bit like a migraine, so bright lights and loud noises are bothersome. The cognitive effects are feeling a little bit slowed down, having trouble remembering or trouble concentrating. Sometimes that's very obvious. You know, we've had sort of in the most obvious was a teenager who didn't know what his cell phone was for. Like, that's pretty obvious. Um, But other times it's very subtle stuff, and a teenager forgot to take out the trash or doesn't remember where he put his shoes. And that's very hard to discern. Is that just typical teen behavior, or is that really because you have a concussion? All the time, right? So we say all the time, it's oftentimes to tell the difference between a teenager and a teenager with a concussion because they look remarkably alike sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then sleep disturbance. So... In the beginning stages, they are often exhausted. Their brain is just physically spent, and so they're very tired and sleep all day. But at the same time, a lot of them will have trouble sleeping, and that's a tough combination um, for healing. And the emotional side of things is often not noticeable in the first 24 or 48 hours. But if the concussion goes on for weeks, many of these children become fairly emotional. They have some lability. Um, you know, cry at what seems like nothing. They're very edgy or snippy, kind of get angry at things they wouldn't uh, typically get mm. angry about. Is there a difference between having an injury that you get knocked out with or not? We used to differentiate that for concussion. Is that is that true at all? That's a great question. So we've learned a lot about concussions over the past five years and 10 years. And we used to think that you had to get knocked out for it to be a bad concussion. But if you really look at it, statistically, less than 10% of concussions had loss of consciousness. We used to think that loss of consciousness was very important in predicting recovery, meaning if you had gotten knocked out or you had loss of consciousness, it was going to be a bad one. It was going to take you a long time to get better. It turns out it's really not predictive of recovery at all. So we certainly see very severe concussions that take a long time to get better that had no loss of consciousness. And conversely, someone who maybe Mm. had loss of consciousness for a couple minutes, but recovers very quickly. Mm. So there used to be grading systems for concussions. You know, you hear people talk about you have a grade one concussion or grade three or it's, and everybody always wants to know how bad is it? Like, what are you telling me? We used to have lots of grading systems. At one point, there were like 13 different classification systems for concussions, and a lot of them relied on whether or not there was loss of consciousness. But what we learned is that, you know, the reason to have a grading system or a classification system is so that you can predict recovery. Um, And what we learned was we really had no idea what we were talking about, Mm. and the grading systems were not terribly helpful. So we don't really even do that anymore, and it's not based on loss of consciousness. Um, We pretty much just say 
you have a concussion, your concussion is different than everybody else's concussion, and we have to treat you that way. Kathleen, is there a difference between sports and non-sports concussions if you're in a car accident or if you're in a football field? The truth is, at the end of the day, no. It's the same injury. Um, Certainly the sport-related ones are getting all the press and all the attention. And that's good because it has certainly opened up everyone's eyes about concussion. But the truth is, it doesn't matter if you were in a car accident or you got hit on the football field. It's the same mechanism and the treatment strategy should really be the same. The ultimate question at the end of the day is, what are we trying to get you back to? What was your life like before the injury? And that's where we want to get you to afterwards, Mm. if possible. So if you're an athlete, we want to get you back on the field. If you have to go to work, we want to be able to get you back to work, right? So, But the mechanism is absolutely the same, and the treatment should be too. So you've had your bell rung. You're on the sidelines, and something's happened. What do you do first? What are they doing on the football field when the doctor comes up and starts looking at you? (laughs) Right, yeah. So first let me say we try not to say bell rung anymore um, (laughs) because uh, that implies a minor injury or a minor hit, and it's associated with get back out there, son, right? Mm. You got your bell rung, get back out there, son. That's like the corollary to it, right? Yeah, 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 get back out there. So, And we've learned a lot about what really happens. So there's an injury on the field – witnessed or not witnessed, but somebody suspects that you have a concussion, you're taken off onto the sidelines and and you're evaluated by a qualified healthcare professional. That's the ideal scenario, which may be an athletic trainer, it may be a physician on the sidelines. Um, In the beginning stages um, afterwards, what you're trying to piece together is what happened. How do you know that's what happened? Did somebody else see it? Did you see it? Did you get knocked out or not? That's important for other reasons in addition to the concussion. If you've had prolonged loss of consciousness for more than, some people say one minute, some people say five minutes, that may predict intracranial bleeding, and that's a person that should be seen immediately in the emergency department. So your first steps are to figure out, should we be calling an ambulance, or are you okay to stay here on the sideline while we evaluate you? Then do you remember what happened? If you don't remember what happened, that's a sign first of all, of a concussion, but second of all, of prolonged recovery. That is probably going to take you a while to get better. And then after the, you know, sort of initial history of what happened, then you're trying to figure out, are they okay? And so on the sideline, you're trying to do a cognitive assessment. Their mental status is what we call it. So can they remember things? So do you remember where you are? Do you remember who were playing? Do you remember what the score is? What was the last play that was just ran? Some people previously might ask who's the president or what's the date or um, have you do some math or some numbers. But if you've never met this person before, you might not know if they could produce those answers anyway. But an athlete on the sidelines will know where they're playing, who they're playing, what the score is, that sort of thing. So you're trying to do a cognitive assessment. Um, You're doing a neurologic exam to make sure that there's not any signs of a more serious injury, like some bleeding inside their brain. And then uh, some more specific tests, we're looking at their balance function because that's often injured in concussion. And we're looking at their ability to coordinate their eye movements um, and some tests for their vestibular system. And again, these may be grossly abnormal on the sidelines or they may be perfectly normal. And so it's a tough place to be on the sidelines to make that quick assessment. And I think what we've learned is that it's always better to err on the side of caution. You know, if you suspect somebody has a concussion, act like they have a concussion. We used to do our best to try, when I say we, the medical community, the sports medical community, used to do our best to try and get them back out there as fast as we could. And what we've learned is that's really not the right thing to do. 
better to take your time, figure out what you're dealing with. And generally now, outside of the professional leagues, and even more so at the professional level, it is generally agreed upon, if you think somebody has a concussion, sit them out. It's not worth going back in and risking re-injury. Kathleen, there's a lot of sports going on, and there's not always a doctor on the sideline or a trainer. It may just be the coach or the assistant coach. Are most coaches trained in um, doing a concussion assessment on the sideline? No. Uh, we're getting there. Uh, at the high school level, there are now requirements for coaches to undergo concussion training and to learn what a concussion looks like and how to suspect one and to do some quick testing. There's an app for that, of course, on iPhones and Androids that can help you run through those same questions and ask them sort of to try and figure out their mental status. It's a little checkbox of, yes, they might have a concussion. But at the lower age groups, we really don't have a lot of these safety nets, you know, and, and sort of the most vulnerable kids have the least amount of resources. And so educating parents, coaches, families as much as we can about what it really does look like, what a concussion looks like, I think is important because they are the ones on the sidelines. You're right. It's not most of the time going to be an athletic trainer or a physician. Yeah, I mean, my kids play hockey, and I've been in the stands, and a a small child falls and hits their head on the ice, and the first thing everyone's thinking of is it a concussion, and we're kind of trying to assess the child and then decide, you know, what to do, and I I guess that plays out across, you know, hockey arenas and other sports fields across the country. Absolutely, every minute of every day almost, and it's a tough call. Obviously, you don't want to take kids away from playing if you don't have to, and we don't want it to scare the living daylights out of everybody. But at the same time, it's the only brain you got. And is it really that important to get back out there is kind of what you got to ask yourself, especially for the younger kids, I think. So you've been diagnosed with a concussion by your athletic trainer, say, on the sideline. Do they need to seek other testing or do they need to see you? When do they need to see you? That's a great question. At the high school level, many athletic trainers are quite comfortable in the diagnosis and management of concussions. In the state of Delaware, recently legislation has been passed that says that if there is an athlete that is suspected of having a concussion, they must be cleared by a qualified health personnel, and that is uh, essentially a physician now. So that physician could certainly be your pediatrician or your family medicine doctor. Most, if not all, are versed in Uh, diagnosis and management of concussion. If not, we're certainly happy to see them, and and particularly for the ones who have a prolonged recovery, if it lasts more than three to four weeks, there are some other things that we can start to do to get you better. But, you know, generally in those first few weeks, the management is simply rest and symptom management, and um, most primary care physicians are uh, comfortable in the management. So when you get called, my child's had a concussion. What do you say to them? And is there an emergency to come in today or tomorrow? What's your protocol? Right. So not an emergency to come in and see us. The best thing you can do when somebody has a concussion really is nothing, uh, which is a hard concept for many to understand, and particularly for young people. The initial management of concussion is absolute positive rest. And the sooner you recognize that they have a concussion, the sooner you shut them down and get them resting, the faster they're going to get better. And so even if we can provide that information over the phone for someone of what rest really looks like and what it should be, and um, I think that's a great start to it. 
the things that do worry us that we do want somebody to be seen urgently and, you know, particularly in the emergency department um, is, especially in the first 24 to 48 hours after the injury, um, if they are having difficulty staying awake or being woken, uh, if they have persistent vomiting, if they have a severe headache, this is difficult because many of them do have a severe headache and figuring out what's severe enough to go to the emergency department is not easy. Um, or any what we call focal neurologic signs. So if they have an eye droop or, you know, one side of their face looks different than the other side of their face or they're having trouble moving their arm or their legs, that implies that it's more than a concussion and they should be seen in the emergency department. But once you've sort of satisfied that it's not one of those, then the best thing you can really do is just start resting them as soon as you can. We were taught uh, back in residency that you should wake your child in the middle of the night to make sure they can wake up after a concussion. Is that still true? Not really. Um, the reason to wake somebody up through the night is if you are concerned that they may have bleeding in their brain, uh, an epidural collection of blood, and that may not present within the first two hours or three hours or four hours after the initial injury, but maybe in the next six to 12 hours and sometimes up to 24 hours later. And so the idea was that you were seeing the emergency department and the instructions would be that he looks fine now, but this might happen, and so you should continue to wake them up through the night. And the truth is, if you are really concerned about that, then they should stay in the emergency department for observation, have imaging, be seen, you know, by a physician. Outside of that, then the best thing you can do for somebody who has a concussion is to really let them rest. And if you're waking them up every hour, they're not really resting, and, and the healing's not really going to start. Now, having said that and counseled parents on this um, many times over, I still don't know a parent that is able to do that and to not go check on them every hour or two and wake them up. And I don't blame them. And it's not horrible to do that. And, you know, it's not going to prolong their concussion, you know, forever. But generally speaking, you shouldn't need to do that. And when you say the treatment, the first treatment is really to shut them down, what does that mean? Well, I guess it depends on their degree of um, injury. The vast majority of children, adolescents, and even adults who have a concussion don't have horribly severe symptoms. They have a headache and they don't feel right, and, um, but they'll get better fairly quickly. The vast majority of people get better within a week or two. But if they really do have significant symptoms and everything they do bothers them, lights bother them, noise bothers them, their headache is constant all the time, and they're just not right, if you can take them out of pretty much their entire environment and really shut them down, they can feel better remarkably quickly. The deal is that the way the injury happens is that there winds up being an energy mismatch, so to speak, in the brain. So the injury has occurred, the brain needs energy to heal itself, but it can't get the right amount of energy. And then if you add on top of that, lots of cognitive work and thinking or running or jumping, that takes up energy too. And so we really want as much energy as possible to go towards healing and not towards everything else. So for young people, it typically means taking them out of school and having them do uh, brain rest, which includes cognitive and physical rest. So we have them pretty much just lying around the house, really limiting screen time. And this is really important. No smartphones, no iPads, no video games, no computer use or computer work. We usually do let them watch TV, but not watching TV all day and really quiet TV. What I tell them all the time is not the fast and the furious. We're looking for like more quiet level TV as long as that doesn't bother you. And sometimes even that's bothersome. And really just chilling out. If you're tired, sleep. 
And then as they start to feel better, um, we start to add things back to their life sort of a little bit at a time. So you let them do a little bit of cognitive work, a little bit more thinking, a walk around the house. And then for young people back to school, obviously has to be their first priority. So we add a little bit of school at a time, but without doing a, you know, a lot of homework or not working on the smart board, not working on your iPad or your computer at home. It's so visually stimulating, it can really make it difficult for them to recover. And then you make it to school all day, then you add homework back in, then they're taking tests, and then you worry about the physical and fun side of things. So it it can be a a slow process. Now, for some people, this goes very quickly. The ones that recover quickly, this could all be said and done in two, three days or even a week. But for others, it's a much slower process that we have to be careful with. So it sounds like your team is really in contact with the schools a lot. This is a very close partnership with school and workplaces, and you spend a lot of time doing that. We do, and we spend time communicating with guidance counselors and school nurses. Every school ideally will have their sort of concussion quarterback or go-to person or their team that is coordinating, and we'll have our team, and hopefully the two are talking together. We request accommodations. We ask them to try and come up with a plan for the student that is doable. If, you know, if they're out of school for you know two days or three days, they've missed a significant amount of work. And then if they're out for a week, they've really missed a lot of work. And so we ask them to come up with a game plan for the student, uh, you know, something that's doable and not overwhelming to get them mm-hmm. back in the groove. And, and back to doing their work. Kathleen, I know there are kids who've had a head injury, they've been diagnosed with a concussion, they've missed school, they've rested, but then the weeks go by or maybe even the months go by and the headaches are continuing, they're not feeling right, and they feel they can't return to school. Is there sort of a chronic concussions, post-concussion syndrome or does it get to a certain point where it just keeps going and going? Absolutely. And this is uh, often difficult to sort through. So if you look statistically across the board, particularly in the under 25 age group, 80% of people with concussions are better by four weeks. After four weeks, the curve of recovery really plateaus. And so after four weeks, there are some people who are then better in a day, and then there are some people who are better in months. And sorting through that is difficult. And then you can imagine you've had a concussion for four weeks or five weeks. You've been taken out of most everything that you love, uh, including school and friendships. It's very socially isolating. You can't do the things that you like to do. And even for an adult not being able to go to work, you know, it's thoroughly depressing and it provokes a significant amount of anxiety. And so by four or six weeks, what we find is there is a significant crossover between concussion symptoms and depression and anxiety. And it gets very difficult and muddy to tell what's what sort of doesn't matter because you treat them all, you have to really approach this from all sides. And if I think if you're not addressing those other issues like depression and anxiety, in addition to the concussion, you're really going to miss the boat. And so we talk about that very openly and frequently early on in the course of concussion. We used to think until, like I said, five to 10 years ago, we've learned so much about concussions, but up until very recently, and probably about five years ago, if you weren't better by four weeks or five weeks or six weeks, we didn't have a ton to offer you. And in fact, we often said, well, just keep resting. Um, It'll go away eventually. And it could go on for a very long time. And you could imagine the the rate of depression that would be associated with that. What we've learned is that there is a lot that we can do for you if you are not remarkably better by somewhere around four or five or six weeks or so. And some people wait even a little bit longer because, again, most people really will just get better. But 
So what we try and figure out is, you know, where is your major symptom complex? What seems to be sort of the driving force for most of your symptoms? Not always easy. It's such a mixed bag. But we can now offer concussion rehab or physical therapy for people who are still really struggling. And many of them will continue to have difficulty or deficits or dysfunction with their vestibular system and with their ocular motor system and um, their visual system, which you could imagine makes it difficult to do just about everything. But certainly to be in school all day is very difficult to be confronted with a very visually stimulating world. And it continues to provoke symptoms and provoke symptoms. So we have rehab that we can do for that now that is actually very effective. Additionally, we can start to get them exercising, which I think is critical for most of these patients. It's not a lot of exercise. It's very small and very controlled, and it's an effort to just sort of retrain their autonomic system, get their heart rate and their blood pressure up a little bit at a time, and in the simplest terms, sort of convince their brain that it's okay to get your heart rate up and to get your blood pressure up and to not cause a big cascade of symptoms. It it takes a lot of patience, um, and it takes weeks of work, but it's actually very effective. There are also now medications that we can use for those who are still really struggling at four, five, six, eight weeks or so if they're not on a really positive trend. And those are aimed, again, at what is your major symptom complex? What seems, you know, to be the most bothersome is where we start, although we always target it from every side. But so if your primary issue now is headaches, Why are you continuing to have headaches? And there are a variety of reasons for that. But there are some people who have a migraine-type headache uh, associated with the concussion and after the concussion. And so we often use some of the medications that are used for treating migraines to treat these folks, and they seem to be really quite effective. A lot of folks will continue to struggle with what we call cognitive fatigue. This is the patient or athlete who gets up in the morning, they just had a good eight hours of sleep, and they think, oh, you know, it's not going to be that bad of a day. And then by second period, they're a disaster. Their head hurts, they can't think anymore, they're exhausted, because they've just taxed their brain. That is That little bit of energy that they used up was all that they had, and now all of their symptoms come back. So there are some medications now that are targeted to help those folks, and what they try and do is help your brain to work a little bit more efficiently. It doesn't cure your concussion by any stretch. We haven't figured out how to do that, but it just gets you over the hump so that you can get back in school or get back to work or, you know, more into your life. Mm. So I think, you know, like I said, over the past few years, our ability to help these patients has just expanded significantly. And, you know, there are still some who months later are still really struggling with some symptoms, but I I think we're making a big dent in that population if you really sort through what the issues are. So one more question before we move on to prevention. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you get the, you know, the athlete who is about to go to the Olympics, <laughs> fell off the balance beam and had a concussion and just has to get back. Uh, what do you say to them and will they shop for another doctor and what's your experience? Yeah, they will. Uh, they, they may shop for another doctor and I think we've learned, again, so much more about this and we know what a concussion really is and what a concussion can really do now. And it's very difficult for that highly competitive athlete who is literally, you know, weeks away from whatever event or competition or whatever it is that they really want to get back to. I think there's a number of issues for them to consider. One is if they're really still symptomatic and they're still having difficulties with their balance system and with gaze stability, their ocular motor function, they're not going to be terribly effective on the field or on the balance beam or on the court, and they're going to be highly vulnerable to another injury um, because they're just not that 
fast or quick or they can't see things coming or they, you know, if they're having trouble with their vestibular system, they're not going to be able to tumble like they normally do. So that's part one. And the other side of it is the risk of another injury. So if you are not fully recovered from a concussion and you sustain another head injury, there are some significant risks to think about. And this is what we try and counsel them on. Um, One is that the effects are cumulative and having two concussions within a short period of time will clearly result in a more prolonged recovery and a, and a, and a more severe concussion. And they have to think about that in terms of what's next for your life, you know, with school and your junior year is coming up or whatever competition is next, or do you want to go to college? You know, like those kind of things are, are truly important. And then everyone's worst nightmare and our biggest fear, and this is sort of why we're what I often tell parents, like, this is why I seem so crazy about my concern and my recommendations for rest. So it's called second impact syndrome. Second impact syndrome is very rare, but it seems to be real. It occurs only in young people. It happens when you have a concussion. You're not fully recovered from that concussion. You sustain another head injury. If that were to happen, what appears to happen is that there is some dysregulation of cerebral blood flow. So you can't control the blood supply to your brain. It looks like the brain swells up, they get cerebral edema. Statistically, with second impact syndrome, 50% of people who get second impact syndrome die, and the other 50% are left with some morbidity. So they have some loss of function, uh, some chronic long-term brain damage of inability to swallow or eat or walk or talk or whatever. It, it's a big deal. And so we counsel them on this. Uh, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, these are the risks and these are the benefits and they're going to make their own decision. We have very little control over what happens once you leave the office. So the best that we can do is say, look, these are the risks. They're very real these are the benefits, also very real. Obviously, you've trained your whole life for this event, and this is a big deal. And and we know for many of them, it's not just playing a sport. It's being part of a team. It's learning sportsmanship. There's so much more to be learned than just how to throw a ball. So it's a risk-benefit calculation. And it's very easy for me to see that the risks far outweigh the potential benefits. And so you know, my recommendation to that athlete would be it's not worth it. But but it's very difficult for them to understand and to hear, and particularly when they've, again, trained their whole life to get there. I feel for them, but it's the only brain you get, and you got to treat it right. So Kathleen, with, again, talking about, you know, prevention and, and you know, avoiding that whole, that whole scenario. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you think of concussion, you think of contact sports like football, ice hockey, um, I mean, those kids are wearing helmets. And then you mentioned sports like soccer or perhaps basketball where there's no protective headgear and kids are flying up and down the field or the court. Which is more dangerous, I guess, to play? Um, that's a great question. And the dangers are wide and varied uh, depending on the sport. Obviously, football and rugby are collision sports where the goal of the game is to hit the other person versus something like basketball or soccer where it's a contact sport where contact occurs and is incidental to you trying to get the ball. Um, So collision sport, probably inherently more risky. Statistically, football probably has the highest incidence uh, in males of concussion. Soccer in girls has the highest incidence, um, followed closely behind by ice hockey, lacrosse, um, and even basketball is up there. 
protective equipment is helpful in many ways, but not in preventing concussions. So we just haven't figured that out yet. And that is truly the holy grail of concussion research right now is how to prevent a concussion. We know helmets are very effective in preventing intracranial injury and skull fractures, and that's what they were designed for. That impact is then dispersed across the helmet instead of to your skull. So you prevent the skull fracture, you prevent intracranial bleeding, but we haven't figured out yet how to stop your brain from moving inside the skull. And so thus far, the greatest football helmets ever invented, and even the ones that have Kevlar lining, don't yet prevent concussions. We don't have any good evidence that they do. Should you wear one? Absolutely. Should you get a good one that fits? Absolutely. But do you have to spend $1,000 for it? I don't think so. And then in soccer, uh, a lot of people ask about headgear for soccer. It's a sort of a padded headband. Unfortunately, it doesn't do a darn thing to prevent concussions. And so I actually counsel against them because I think when people wear them, they feel a little bit more invincible and are maybe a little bit more likely to play more aggressively. Mouth guards for soccer, hockey, basketball, whatever sport, even football, highly effective in helping to prevent dental injuries, but unfortunately don't prevent concussions. And there are a number of them that are being marketed as concussion mouth guards, um, and people are spending upwards of $500 to have them custom made. And unfortunately, there's no evidence to support that they prevent concussions. And in terms of prevention, Kathleen, Impact testing before, afterwards, what role does it play for us? Impact testing is a computerized neuropsychological test that gives us some idea of some specific parts of your brain cognitively how they're working. It looks at verbal memory, visual memory, sort of processing speed of the brain and your reaction time. These areas we know are often affected in concussions and they are easily tested. And so that's where the test comes from. And when you are trying to decide if someone is recovered from a concussion, obviously you want to be darn sure that they are recovered from their concussion before you let them go get hit in the head again, right? So in order to decide if someone is recovered, a number of factors have to come into play. So one is that they feel fine. All of their symptoms have resolved. They feel totally normal. Two, I usually say that their parent also thinks that they are back to normal because sometimes they'll notice something that the patient won't notice. Three, their physical exam has to be normal. So that includes tests of their vestibular system, ocular motor function, balance, that sort of thing. And then four is some assessment of cognitive recovery. And this is where the impact test can be helpful. It is one piece of the puzzle. It's not perfect. There are other types of it as well. So there are some that are called, um, there's one called Cogsport and Headminders. Impact is the most widely known and tested. It is, again, one helpful piece of the puzzle. And in the ideal scenario, we would have had a baseline test for you that was done before you ever got injured. And so we know that this is where you should score. Typically, now you've had an injury, we think you're better. So we're going to test you again and make sure that you really have come back to full recovery. Um, not everyone uses it. I find it very helpful, and I do use it, but I think it has to be used in the right circumstances in the right way and in, and interpreted by someone who understands what the test is trying to do. So the uh, final million-dollar question, it's your child. They want to play sports. Some sports you would let them play. Some sports you wouldn't. I know this is personal. 
What's your comment? Yeah, personal and highly controversial. Um, I struggle with this a lot, and I don't know what the answer is. The truth is I love football, and I love watching it. I think it's a great sport. I'm not sure I would let my child play or rugby um, at least until they're older. I think that learning the skills is important, and you can certainly do that at a young age, but I'm not sure that under the age of 14, they need to be involved in full contact. Um, there's a lot of talk about this, you know, and on the one hand, you have to teach them how to tackle, they have to learn how to tackle, and they have to learn that young so they don't get clobbered when they're older. But on the other hand, if you can reduce the number of exposures that they have, then you can reduce the incidence of concussion. And so I'm not sure, I'll be honest, um, what the right answer is. That was the perfect answer. This has been fantastic, right, Paul? Yes. And I've learned a whole lot. We could talk forever. Absolutely. Thanks all for being here. To our listeners, if you have a question about this topic, or if there's another topic you'd like us to explore in a future pediatric chat, you can send it to us by using the question portal on our webpage. And be sure to view our library for more pediatric chat programs. I'm Dr. Jay Greenspan, and thanks for listening.